Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. The sun has come out. I think that's Colleen, just her presence. The clouds cannot stand her presence. And of course, we have with us Peter Johnson and Colleen Sullivan, co-heads of Venture at Brevin Howard. They're joining us here from, from windy Chicago to rainy New York. Well, not at this moment, but... Thanks so much for coming into the studio to chat with us. I think this is your first podcast together. First podcast together. First podcast from Brevin. That's Just fantastic. For you, Frank. Wow. This is quite the treat. I'm honored and privileged and excited to chat with you. So obviously Brevin Howard is one of the leading global alternative investment management firms. And Alan Howard specifically is a global macro genius but you guys are focused more so on the crypto trading and venture side of things. I feel like Colleen has that trading background and Peter, you have that venture background when you were at Jump Capital. So there's a lot to dive into. I guess just to start things off, how's it been going? Like, are you guys getting along? Oh my God, working with Peter is a dream. So we've known each other for about seven years co-invested in 11 companies, co-founded the DeFi Alliance, now known as Alliance. And I don't think there's a better investor, period, in the world than Peter. So every day is like a gift working with him. I'm not surprised because Peter has taken to many of my budding investment ideas that I've come up with recently. You have great ideas, Frank. Great Frank Bank, ideas. Farm, farm. farm Dow. He was trying to get me to do that last night. No, it's huge. It's called be, me and said we have a farm Dow. It's going to be big. Don't going to be huge. Going to be huge. Don't take the idea, Peter. But Peter, you uh, grew up on a farm, didn't you? I did grow up on a farm. Yes. What kind was it? Was it uh, chickens? It was corn, soybeans, typical row crops in Minnesota. It reminds me of that. Um, remember that movie, Meet the Fockers, where he's like, <laughs> "I grew up on a farm," and that's where he learned to milk. And he was like, "What did you milk?" And he was like cats or something it's one of my favorite movies so anyway what's the venture landscape look like for you guys what's the underpinning thesis at brevard what have you entered the market to sort of execute on well first of all i've never been more excited about where crypto is and the opportunities to invest in crypto venture we are seeing an incredible amount of innovation and real-world use cases for crypto that we're really excited about. You know, me and Colleen's background, we've both been investing in crypto for over eight years and have seen kind of the rises and falls and the different cycles that we've gone through. 
And, you know, a lot of that has been focused around speculative trading. That's really been the main mm -hmm. use case for crypto over the last 10 plus years. And so we've invested behind that theme a lot, or I have, I think we both have, investing in things like exchanges, invested in 14 exchanges around the world, custodians, wallets, institutional trading infrastructure, DeFi came, big investors in DeFi and all elements of that. And we're still investing in a lot of things in the trading space. There's still a ton of opportunity around trading in crypto, and it's still one of the primary use cases. But I'd say what we're really excited about right now is moving beyond just speculative trading and where are the real world use cases that we're seeing crypto start to gain adoption. So things like gaming, which we think is going to be absolutely huge. Things like NFTs creating a new category of fashion and luxury items and art. Uh, Stablecoins becoming a new global payment rail, which we're seeing to see really significant adoption and really interesting on-chain data if you look at how stablecoins are actually being used. And then the supporting infrastructure that makes all that happen, things like smart contract security, data and analytics, uh, compliance, which is maybe not all that exciting, but are uh, areas I mean, Clean have been investing in for years and, and we really like. So those are kind of the main theses that we're you know looking at and excited about right now. I feel like we're entering a third phase of crypto right now, the Web3 phase, the sort of utility phase. If you think about previous cycles, we had a speculative wave of new exchanges, to your point, come in, and then we had a DeFi wave come in, and now we're in this Web3 arena where there are investment opportunities that we probably didn't think would exist at this point, maybe three years ago, and there are players that are very active in crypto that we probably wouldn't have thought about entering the market three years ago. Gucci, Tiffany's, and the like. You're speaking today, Colleen, at Masari Mainnet at 4.50 p.m. on the main stage with one Ryan Selkis. And the headline is, or the panel title rather, is the institutions are here, just not the ones we expected. I assume you're talking about some of the aforementioned players. Yeah. I mean, if I had a Bitcoin for every time Peter and I have said the institutions are coming, there's a wall of institutional capital that's just around the corner, I'd be retired. And those aren't the institutions that are coming necessarily. They're here to a certain extent. So you look at Goldman, JP Morgan, Citi, they're all involved in crypto to a certain extent, not to the degree we would have thought. And some of that is due to regulatory issues and them moving slower than I think they would like. But the institutions that are here are the Gucci's, the Nike's, the Tiffany's, the Dolce & Gabbana, Balmain, Balenciaga. It's really been incredible to watch. And in hindsight, I don't think we should have been all that surprised because brands have been collaborating with games for a really long time. So Gucci alone has partnered with Roblox, The Sims, yeah. Pokemon Go, Animal Crossing, League of Legends. And in a sense, games were like the training wheels that have now been ripped off for the brands to come into Web3. And, you know, there were some stats posted recently about some of the revenue generated by some of these brands. Nike, I think, was 183 million in NFT sales and like 1.3 billion in secondary. Tiffany was 12.6 million in NFT sales and so on. And while these numbers probably seem sort of big to us in the crypto space, 
they're nothing compared to the overall revenues that these brands generate. So like Nike's overall revenue is 44 billion. So what's it doing messing around in Web3 earning 183 million? That's nothing. And I think it's really important to note that these brands understand that sometimes community, culture, storytelling come before product and revenue. They also understand that they need to be in Web3 to meet their customers where they are, so specifically Gen Z and Gen Alpha. And it's, you know, so you might think, okay, they're selling, you know, $5 NFT purses, but that's because eventually these kids are going to be buying $5,000 physical purses from these brands. So we're just seeing a ton of activity. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop. To some extent, some of it's a bit contrived, though, and some of these brands seem to just be taking what exists in the physical world and just plopping it into the digital world. For instance, you had... I forget which car manufacturer it was partner with some metaverse where they just let you effectively have a digital metaverse car where you could drive around in it. And, you know, what's the point of that? It just seems a bit like maybe I don't get it because I'm not a gamer, but some of it seems like how do you make sure it's authentic, I guess, is the question and not contrived. Well, that's the key, right? Because I think you don't want to have a billboard in Decentraland saying like, buy Nikes. That's gonna annoy the people in that environment. So what the brands are doing has to be authentic and immersive and native to that environment. And in a way, the brands have to learn how to speak different languages for the different environments they go into. Mm. Roblox is very different from Fortnite. Fortnite's very different from the Sandbox. The Sandbox is different from Decentraland. So not only do they have to speak the language of those platforms, they have to understand the culture and the communities in those platforms. And if they don't, they just miss the mark. Like that's not gonna it's work. Almost like a company going into a new country or city. Totally. Or region. Absolutely. You know? Yes. It's like almost a different planet. Yes. And it's an entirely new revenue stream for the brands. So they're not making that much money now, but they will. So you look at primary NFT sales, you look at this concept of fidgetals, where you've got an NFT tied to the physical good. You have the secondary sales, you have direct-to-avatar commerce. So I think eventually the activities in these worlds, because of NFTs, will be pretty big revenue generators down the road for the brands. Got it. Can those sort of arrangements scale? Like if you are a metaverse or an NFT collection, right, what's the sort of business model there? Yeah. Well, let's talk numbers yeah. really quickly. Peter and I talk about this a lot. So let's just run through, because I think about the participants in the metaverse as falling under the definition of gamers. To me, games have a very broad definition that include NFT experiences, metaverse experiences, digital, you know, like Disney's, you know, it's, it's very broad. So when you think about gamers right now, there are 3 billion gamers globally. So one in every three people. Ubisoft says that'll be 5 billion in the next couple of years. You have 81% of Gen Z's playing games. You have 183 billion in gaming revenue in 2021. You have 135 of that attributable solely to purchases of virtual goods. Okay, so this gets to kind of where you were going. Fortnite alone is 20 billion over the last four years in virtual goods purchases. Fortnite, 
Peter, you got to give the favorite line here. Now, Fortnite is one of the largest fashion brands in the world. They sell more digital fashion items than companies like J. Crew and Prada. Like it's unbelievable. Wait, by in terms of like dollar amount? Dollar amounts. You yes. bet. Yeah. Twenty billion over the last four years, and all of that is virtual cosmetics. So like yeah, Balenciaga, yeah, 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 yeah. So can it scale? Yes. And then the last thing I'll say here is if you've got 81% of Gen Zs in games now, and you've got a broad definition of games, you have to assume that every Gen Alpha is a gamer. So that's age nine and below. There are 385,000 babies born a day. So you're adding 140 million gamers to the world every year. The only limit is internet connectivity, of which 63% of the population has. Got it. There's some alpha in Generation Alpha. Yes, there um, is. It's funny, you know, when I first started going into some of these metaverse worlds, and you have an avatar, right, whether it's the Central Land, Crypto Voxels, I was walking through Voxels without, and I think they rebranded. I don't know if they're called that anymore, but be that as it may, walking around in my avatar without any clothes. I felt naked. I hope Gucci's listening to this. They need to clothe you. They do. And they can also sponsor the scoop and they can get me some nice skins. And maybe IWC can get me a metaverse watch. But no, it's like an actual like weird human itch to express yourself digitally. You want to express yourself in the same way that you do in the analog world, but in the digital world. So people can know... You know, at a very basic level, maybe they have some cash or taste or class, et cetera. It's the inclination to sort of express those characteristics or your own characteristics are just as powerful in the digital world as they are in the analog world. And there's another opportunity maybe that stems from that, which is this infrastructure element. When we were prepping for our call yesterday, Peter, we were speaking with a fund-to-fund investor, and we were joking about how, like, custody is a big topic again. And it's funny because I feel like that was what we were all talking about four years ago, but it's not just custody, I guess, of Bitcoin and Ethereum and the like, but also custody of, I don't know, skins in Fortnite, or the list goes on. Yeah, absolutely. That is kind of a new thing that custodians are trying to figure out how do we custody these digital items and NFTs. And there's there's not great offerings out there from a custody perspective for these high value NFTs. So that that is, I think, something that's very interesting in the custody space. And there is kind of a whole new kind of level of infrastructure that you need on kind of where we've moved to over the last four years. Because custody four years ago was how do I secure my assets, my Bitcoin and my Ethereum, that are held in one place. We've now moved to a world where I don't want to hold my crypto in one place. I don't want to hold my NFTs in one place. I want to do something with them. I want to have them in DeFi. I want to be able to claim new items with my NFTs. I actually want to be active with these things. So that opens up a whole new kind of world of smart contract security. And how do you secure these assets when you're actually doing things with them? And that's an area that we've been focusing on a whole lot is smart contract security. And how do you operate securely in this world, and we talk about also institutions coming into this space, they need to feel safe. They need to feel safe from a security perspective. They need to feel safe from a regulatory perspective. And those are the type of infrastructure solutions that I think are really important right now. I want to go back to this idea that the institutions 
that exist in the market right now are not the ones that we anticipated, I would kind of maybe qualify that with the suggestion that I feel like the institutions are here, but it's just that the banks aren't here. The banks are still on the sidelines. City, to an extent, Goldman, I mean, they just move slow. To, to Colleen's point, they are kind of at the periphery uh, doing certain things, but the hedge funds are all here. I mean, Brevin Howard We're being here. a $20 billion fund is a great example. The high-frequency trading firms, even the largest asset manager, BlackRock, is working with Coinbase in some respect. And so it's like they all are here. I joked yesterday on Twitter. I said, they're here. They're shorting everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but when we used to speak you know, several years ago, we talk about the inefficiencies of the market. I know there's sensitivities around you guys talking about specifically whether you guys are the ones shorting, but what does the market structure look like today? I know you do some trading. Is it better than it was? Is it more efficient? And are there opportunities to invest there, right? There are all these different companies trying to sort of be, you know, routers, prime brokers, et cetera. Real quick, I'm going to qualify one thing. I'm going to let Peter answer that. You know, I use that title. The institutions are here, just not the ones we mm -hmm. expected, solely because I don't think people pay enough attention to what's going on with the brands. I mean, I completely agree with you yeah. that the traditional institutions are here. So the title is a bit tongue-in-cheek. But Peter, I'm going to let you answer Frank's question. Yeah, from a trading infrastructure perspective, it, it's gotten a lot better than it was years ago in that you do have some sort of prime brokerages that, that's available. You have some order management, execution management type systems. It, it, certainly, it's a lot better than it was in the exchanges, just being able to work with high-frequency trading firms, for example, that that's gotten much, much better. There still is like inefficiencies in that most exchanges require pre-funding. You know, there's not margining across exchanges. There, there's a lot of things that in the traditional finance world exist and still don't really exist in crypto. But it's come a long way over the last four years, that's for sure. Yeah. And one area where we expect to see continued growth is definitely derivatives. It's surprising to me that Deribit still commands pretty much all the liquidity. Yeah, it's like 98%. Yeah. Let's take a look at the block data dashboard. Great dashboard. It is. Highly recommend. Yeah, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Doctors hate it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I remember I wrote a story after interviewing you, Colleen, about the lack of cross-margin finance, and that was four and a half years ago. What's taking so long? You have to look at the regulatory environment yeah. to a certain extent, because we are still waiting on better guidance for mm. custody accounting, tax, clearly asset classification remains a challenging issue. Mm -hmm. So I think that the issues there, it's hard to untether them from the regulatory environment. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's the biggest holdup. And that's why, you know, we've had a lot of movement on that front right now. And the way Peter and I talk about it is we're kind of moving from waiting for the SEC and the CFTC to act, because if the rules were clear, you know, those actions would have been taken by now. Instead, we just see enforcement. To fill those gaps, we're moving into this area of legislation and litigation. And so I think we will start to have clarity in these areas one way or another. It's still going to take some time, but I think that's when we start to see some of these inefficiencies in market structure get closed. 
Got it. Once we get some regulatory clarity. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. So let's like talk about the mechanics of being a, a venture capitalist, Peter. I know you, I feel like you have a good sense of people and that's like kind of like the first step. Like, is this person someone I can trust? And then what are the other sort of functions that enter that equation? hundred percent. I love that you started with that because that for both me and Colleen isn't the number one thing is we're investing in people. And like, are these people that we trust? Are these people that we think are going to do the right thing? Are these people that can build a business in the right way? And are they people that can attract the right people? I think that that is the most important thing. And me and Colleen, when we got together at Brevin, we looked back at our portfolios at Jump and CMT and you know, looked through what, what are the themes on what made investments successful and what made them not successful. And the overriding theme was who were the leaders? Who are the people? Are they high integrity people? And can they attract good people? Most important thing. Uh, beyond that, I think it's certainly it's, it's founder market fit. Do they have something that's a unique insight into that market that they've been in that whatever it is that they're building for a long time and they're solving a problem that they've had? Like the early folks that were building custody solutions, it's because they had a bunch of Bitcoin and they were storing it for them and their friends and they needed a better way to do it. Or people in different countries that wanted to access. You know, yeah, crypt, what's crypto the asset. BitGo story that Mike Belshi talks about? Something with having Bitcoin under his roommate's couch or something? I can't exactly recall, but... It's something like something that, exactly, like that, yeah. yeah. But the stories for like Mike Belshi and Wences at Zappo and it, like all those early stories, it's people that had issues and they were solving it for themselves. And you, you see that in lots of different types of companies, the different exchanges around the world. It was often people that, hey, I want to access these assets and use them and there's nobody in my country that has a banking relationship and a license and I like, can't do this in a good way. So I'm going to build something that solves that problem. And I think we've seen that in wallets on new blockchains, like there's no good wallet on this blockchain and I want to do cool and interesting things. So I'm going to build a better user experience. So people that are solving problems that they are experiencing themselves, I think that that's something that's been a, a huge predictor of success. Got it. It's interesting. We were kind of joking before we turned on the mics about maybe the trite nature of certain investors out on the West Coast. Do you think that there's something about your Chicago heritage that brings to the table a unique perspective on investing and specifically venture investing? Colleen? You know, I can't really speak to the West Coast ethos because really all I know is the Midwestern one. I will say, you know, you mentioned Peter grew up on a farm. My father was a small school college basketball coach. So I think there's something to where Peter and I both came from. We have pretty humble beginnings, and I think that's stayed with us in the way that we operate in the space. Chicago specifically, you know, it's no accident that Peter and I got involved early in crypto. We both worked for proprietary trading firms. 
where because it's their own capital, they can take risk that third-party asset managers who are fiduciaries for other people's money cannot take. That's why Jump and CMT were able to go into the crypto markets early and take that kind of risk. And you know, Peter actually started investing on a venture basis before mm-hmm. Jump started trading. I was the opposite. We started trading, and then due to the inefficiencies we saw in the market, we started investing on a venture basis. But I do think that strong foundation of trading and then the HFT architecture excellence is really important to what Peter and I do. I mean, it even comes into play with the metaverse environments we're looking at now. One of the problems with having these massive scaled systems and that are persistent with millions of people in them at once you can't do that on the web right now. Mm. You know who knows how to do that? HFT firms. They've brought low latency environments at scale. I mean, these are the key parts of their trading operations. So when I think about who's really well-suited to solve those kind of challenges, it's the people in our backyards in Chicago. It's the HFT firms that know how to build that stuff. And they kind of are, you know, at the forefront of Everything yes. that's going on. It's very interesting. That's how I started covering crypto was through covering those firms, Jump, Jane Street, Virtu, and the like, although Virtu was a bit late, later to the game to an extent. And they're building the infrastructure. They're not just trading, right? They're sort of incubating all sorts of different projects, whether it's Pyth or Pith, however, I think there's an ongoing debate on the pronunciation, Wormhole. And then, of course, Mr. Bankman-Fried has a background in trading and vis-a-vis Jane Street. And they've built quite the empire and continue to do so. Is that good? Is that something that we should look at as scary to the sort of decentralized crypto future, this utopian future of everyone on an equal playing field? given the, maybe the unfair, but the sort of cutthroat reputation that these HFT firms have or these high-speed trading firms have. Maybe this could be a defense of them, if you will. Yeah, I think the main takeaway that I have from how Jump has built their operation, how a lot of these trading firms have built their operation, and also how we're operating at Brevin, is that to operate in the crypto space, it is very difficult to just be a narrow crypto venture investor mm-hmm. and not have that connected with trading, with engineering, with all these other things, because in crypto, these things are so tied together. And mm-hmm. that if you don't have those other elements, you're really at a disadvantage. So at you know Brevin, we're obviously me and Colleen are leading the venture group, but we also are doing a lot of trading. We have 20 blockchain engineers that are on retainer that we work with. We help with recruiting. We, you know, Alan is a huge generative art collection, so we get a lot of benefit from that. There's all these other things that you can do, and I think you have to do to play in the space, because if you just are, we just invested, we don't have these other resources, you're at a disadvantage versus the folks that have this broader scope. Got it. So what's the deal with tokens? I feel like tokens are, what's the uh, Paris Hilton so hot right now? They're not hot. I feel like we're not talking about tokens anymore. I don't know. I mean, I think we are. When I take a step back and I think about why we're here in the first place, I'm going to use a really weird example, and I'm going to use a Web 2 Fortnite and a Web Mm -hmm. 3 Fortnite, okay? And I'm going to caveat everything I say with there are legal issues that need to be sorted out. There are issues with 
legality around DAOs and general partnership liability. And there are issues around the early nature of gaming token economies. But let me tell you why I think tokens are important and critical and really the ethos of what we do. So let's take Web2 Fortnite, very similar to Web3 Fortnite, where the business model is essentially selling cosmetics to gamers. In Web2 Fortnite, you've got a bunch of gamers that were there early. Fortnite's a social game. They made it go viral, and it becomes really popular. Well, those retail gamers um, are not able to participate in the success that Fortnite has brought to Epic Games. Most recent valuation, $31.2 billion largely all attributable to Fortnite. Got so it. when Epic goes public, the first time retail gamers are going to participate is at 32 billion. Roblox, even better example, because all the content in Roblox is created by the gamers. None of it's created by Roblox. They went public at 41 billion. So that's mm. the first time the creators get to participate. And you can say, yeah, they sell stuff in, in uh, Roblox, but mm -hmm. let's talk about that. There's 50 million daily active users in Roblox. Only... Eight made more than $10 million, and 81 made more than a million dollars. Tiny. So very, very small participation on the creator side. So anyway, that's traditional. Now let's talk about Web3 Fortnite. In Web3 mm. Fortnite, you're going to have these gamers who are there day one. They're participating. They're playing the game. They're making it go viral. Web3 Fortnite's going to issue a token, and they're going to issue it based on play, proportionate play. So these early gamers, let's just say that it's valued at 100 million. So they're going to start participating at 100 million. Not only that, when they buy their goods, they're going to own their goods. So they're going to be able to sell them in the secondary market. That really is the point. We have to get people involved, not just where they earn salaries, but mm -hmm. where they have the ability to generate wealth. And that's the promise of what tokens bring to this space. So again, caveat all that with we've got tremendous amount of work to do on the legal side and on the gaming and other just general tokenomics. But that's why I think tokens are so important and we can't just forget about them. Understood. But there's sort of maybe we're having like a reconfiguring exactly the role that they play. You know, the joke I think is or the joke that I have is six months ago, it was when token, not why token. Now we're back maybe to why token and what exactly is the purpose that it solves. And there's a reconfiguration or a resetting happening across the space. This episode hasn't gone out yet, but we did a whole hour with Axie Infinity and he kind of broke down how they're really recalibrating the in-game economy, if you will, and adding elements of pay to win or pay to advance to counterbalance the play to earn. And they're sort of moving away from that mantra to an extent as well. So that's fascinating. I wonder, do you have any thoughts on maybe how DeFi is evolving, Peter? Because I feel like it's kind of stuck in the doldrums to an extent. And like, is that an exciting place to play right now? I, I feel like I talk to folks and they're like, it's just... Not dead, but very quiet. It's certainly quieter. I think that a lot of the excitement in DeFi came from yield farming and incentivizing users to come in. and So much fun. Great fun. Not sustainable Probably at all. Probably funner than Axie Infinity. Ton of fun. <laughs> not sustainable. What we're moving towards now is there's a couple areas of DeFi that are really exciting. One is derivatives. As Clean mentioned, the derivatives market in DeFi is tiny, tiny right now. 
uh, compared yeah. with the traditional market. It's natural that the derivatives market, especially the options market in DeFi is going to get much, much larger. So we were looking at opportunities there, which we think are really interesting. The other thing in DeFi that I think is really interesting is that we are starting to see TradFi and fintech firms plug into DeFi. Mm -hmm. And how can I use this as a better backend for the things that I want to do? I want to offer a yield to my customer. And if Compound and Aave offer an attractive yield, I can just plug into that and offer that to my customers. I think we are soon going to see, I want to offer collateralized loans to my customers. Mm -hmm. And right now, that is a very complicated thing to do, if you, especially if you're an RIA, for example. I've many years ago worked with RAs on like how to do this and it's very complex like you need I need to have a portfolio monitoring system and a liquidation engine I need to hook up with a lender to do this if I'm able to offer it it's probably going to take me a week to offer this loan so most or longer yeah or longer so most don't do it but if you can take assets put them into compound and immediately in minutes offer a collateralized loan to your clients because you have you have the technology there you have the capital there you can just plug and play. Obviously, you need to be able to plug and play traditional assets into something like Compound, which we don't have yet, but we'll get there. And then once we have that, I think you're going to see more and more traditional finance banks, fintechs, etc. just plug into these DeFi applications because it's a better, easier way to offer these services. And that's not it. You know, Frank, you mentioned Axie and think about what helped Axie go viral. It was gamers taking SLP and creating liquidity pools and Uniswap sure. that allowed them to convert out of the in-game asset to USDC or Ethereum and then into fiat. So we'll see games plugging in, too. There's a convergence of gaming and finance that is very fascinating to me. I mean, Axie even has its own decentralized exchange. Coinbase, this morning I was at their press conference and Mr. Greg Tusar. Uh, who is, I think, their VP of Institutional Product, if I am recalling correctly, said that one of his major goals of its sort of prime services division is to bridge the gap between institutions and Web3 protocols like Aave and Compound. I feel like the future is more seamless financial services and incorporating these aspects of our lives that were maybe not financialized. It's almost like the financialization of everything where you can take sort of these assets that once were either a liquid or, or hard to value and then leverage them in a way that you couldn't before. I'm taking a loan out against my 401k against myself to giga ape into a, a farm. Into the farm. Into a farm? It's a good idea. I'm very excited. Not financial advice. It took like 20 <laughs> days. I still haven't gotten the money. I'm like worried because I was looking through the thing, the not prospectus, the, the details of it. And it said it could take 10 days via check. I was like, I hope I didn't click the check option by accident. I don't even know where that check would go. Just I, I've had so many addresses over the past few years. Like it's just going to end up in New Jersey or Florida or... Rhode Island. But yeah, it's just such an antiquated system, all of it. Yeah. And I think that we were talking a little bit yesterday about how do you get the next you know, millions and billions of people into crypto. And I think a lot of that's going to be, they're not coming to onboard into crypto. They're going to be using crypto on the back end to solve problems. Like I want to be able to close on my farm faster. 
I want to be able to have this cool Gucci digital collectible. And it happens mm-hmm. to be an NFT. I don't care that it's an NFT. I just want this cool digital collectible. Or it's I'm playing these games and then I have true ownership of the items in the game. And that's great. But I'm not a crypto person. I'm not an NFT person. It's just this is a better way of offering these services to me. And it's solving a problem that I have. And the next generation of people that are onboarded into crypto, I don't think that they're going to be onboarded into crypto. I think that they're going to be using services that they find value in, and they happen to be crypto-enabled on the back end. Mm. I guess, like, going back to tokens, like, how do you evaluate the token component of the deal? Like, is there, I think folks have been talking about this sort of safe plus warrant. What's the evolution of, like, the sort of, construction of some of these deals? Yeah, so for companies or projects that haven't launched a token yet, the standard is a safe or an equity round plus a token warrant. And it's it's really been that while for way for quite some time, at least for the deals that I've been involved with. And the thinking is a lot of these companies, it's not clear how they're going to monetize yet. It might end up being through the token and the token might accrue value. It might be through the equity and the equity accrues value. At the earliest stages, that's not always completely clear. Mm. Or even if the company has a vision on how it's going to play out, there might be a pivot. Things could change over time. So it makes the most sense for everybody to be investing in an instrument that we're all on the same playing field on if value accrues to the token, we're all in that together. If it goes to the equity, we're all in that together. So I think that that is the early stage crypto you know, kind of standard at this point is, is equity mm. plus tokens. Got it. It's an interesting time to sort of enter the market, right? It's unusual. The Fed is doing its thing. Can't fight it. Don't fight the Fed. But at the same time, like, I feel like all these new funds came into the picture with tons of capital, billions and billions of dollars. Yet price doesn't look good. Price bad, bad price. Is there any breaking out you see possible? Are we just going to track the broader market? I don't know the extent to which you guys think about macro, but I asked just because of sort of the history of the firm. But is it something that you think about? We definitely think about macro. I think we think about it less in the context of... Venture, of course. Yeah, well, the like day-to-day and week-to-week token prices and what is happening with those, that matters to us. But the context that we're investing is mainly in early-stage startups and projects that will monetize over the next three to five to seven years. So what tokens are going to do in the near term really is in our focus. Hopefully they go up because that's good for all of us. But really for us, like right now, we're mainly focused on like, how do we find the best projects? And for a venture investor, this is an incredible time to be investing because we're seeing a ton of innovation, a ton of interesting things getting real traction. And there's a lot of investors that have come out of the market that they are either, they took losses, they're scared, they're hurt, they're not really deploying capital, or they're traditional like fintech investors that came in when it it was hot. And now they've pulled out and they have partners that are writing blogs about how, you know, crypto is a scam and they're going on podcasts with their buddies and saying, you know, crypto and NFTs are no good, even though- Jason, you're invited on the show anytime. (laughs) Fellow Fordham, Fordham alumni. Not calling anybody out. I DM'd him and he didn't respond. I was like, you kidding me? Got to stick together as Fordham, men of Fordham. I don't think he listens to the show. <laughs> I, I think you're seeing right now who 
has true conviction and who's been around for a while and who's goes where the hot new thing is and and leaves when it's not hot. Well, Peter and Colleen of Brevin Howard Digital have certainly been around for quite a while. Would you buy your first Bitcoin in like 20, 2005? No, 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 no. No, you were early though. You were early. <laughs> yeah, no, to crypto. 2013. And you found it through gaming. Is that is crypto? That the, no, you know what it was? Because um, you're a big gamer. Yeah, yeah. No, I love, love, love. I love gaming. No, with crypto, what it was there... You know, I had had a startup that I founded right out of law school, and it was to help democratize certain financial products and services for non-high net worth people. And unfortunately, it didn't make it. But in 2013, I'm reading about Bitcoin, and I'm like, this is going to democratize money if it makes it. Like, this is huge. And fortunately, the guys at CMT, Scott mm-hmm. Casto and Jan Dirk Luders, were willing to listen to me and go along this journey with me. But that's what started it. I really thought it was it, it was either going to be really big or it wasn't. At that time, it felt like it was very binary. But that was really a start. And then I was very curious from a regulatory standpoint, like what do the regulators do with autonomous software running on the internet that's money that no government could control? What What is this going to be? What are they going to do with it? So I was also just very curious. But, that, but that's how it got started. The gaming, we made our first gaming investment at CMT in 2018. So that was pretty early. Now everybody has the same investment thesis in gaming. But back then, I would say it was a little more fringy, but have always loved that area. I feel like gaming and trading, they might share some similar, you have to have similar attributes maybe to be successful. I think absolutely. Yeah, I think it's not an accident that so many traders grew up gaming. You know, you learn so many skills through games you learn, you know, perseverance, how to negotiate. And then I think you take those skills into the real world and apply them there. But for sure, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two. You know, I also think we touched a little bit on derivatives. You know, Peter and I see a world where you do eventually have democratization of access to derivatives. Like you you brought up Axie. You know, what if guilds on behalf of gamers or gamers could have hedged the their SLP, you know, throw a collar on it, right? And <laughs> <laughs> so you do get into a bit of the, you know, financialization of games, but everything's What are you going to have call options on like digital swords? Oh yeah, you're going to sell calls on those swords all day long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clean <But>, well. <laughs> I will. I think, I don't know, Colleen, I think that might be, uh, I don't know what the TAM on that would be. I think it's going to be massive. <laughs> <laughs> So what does the firm look like? Like, what's the team? Is it all Chicago? What's the... The BH Digital part, so Brevin Howard Digital, I think we're about 60 people right Mm -hmm. now. Um, You know, your colleague did a great piece late May, Ryan Weeks Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. Alan. Um, I don't know if you guys can link to that in the show notes. straight to his head. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Alan doesn't... He doesn't do a lot of press, so that was a really big deal. But, you know, Alan really, I think, gave a great overview in that interview of what the firm looks like. Mm -hmm. In terms of where the people are, the majority of the team is in Austin. So my heart is crushed because Peter's moving there in about six weeks. Whoa. I know. Huge. Going to Austin. Big move. Big deal. You'll go back and forth? Yes. Good. Yeah. He promised me. Now this is going to be on the internet forever, Peter. He promised me <laughs> he's coming back in the summers. You have to. Chicago in the summer is a fantastic oh, place. No place better. You only have like three months of That's right. not freezing your tuchus off. 
we were there. We were at the Hoxton not yeah. too long ago. Which was so nice. That was so lovely. It was wonderful. Yeah. You should come I back was, more. I was running late as well. Now you're running late. Now I'm running late. Peter's always on time. He is. Always on time. And he's he probably in back ran zero. Here. He probably ran here. Oh, he did. Well, okay. So now, <laughs> just a slight diversion. Peter just finished a 100-mile race, what, four weeks ago? But get this. He totally got rugged at like mile 90. And they told him it was not 100 miles, but 107. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So you had to do an extra seven. That must have been... Like when your brain's really mentally prepared for like X and then they tell you why, you're probably like, oh, even though you had already done a hundred and only had seven left to go, like Oh no, that's soul crushing. It was like a punch in the gut, probably. Soul crushing. That's insane. We are very far off topic. That's okay. (laughs) No, that's okay. I mean we're winding know that we're winding we're winding down towards the end. So this is a good color for the world to know. And you guys are, I mean, like almost super people to an extent. Like I don't know how you can sort of run hundreds of miles and, you know, do all that you do and and just manage your time. It's a tough job. What do you think played into your success over the course of your careers? I think we both view this job as a privilege. I truly think it's the privilege of a lifetime to be operating in this space. So many things are changing. Money is changing and we're part of it, it's truly a gift. I think having that perspective has helped us operate in this space because to your point, it is 24-7, 365. It never stops. But I think we always keep in mind that we're just very lucky. Wow. Absolutely. And I would say also being high conviction. I mean, me and Colleen both got into crypto pretty early on and we stuck through it through, I think 2015, most people thought crypto was going to die. 2018, fair amount of people thought crypto was going to die. Uh, Terra and Three Arrows Terra, might have like, made a few more think so, it was going to die. <laughs> some people maybe think it's going to die now. I think most people have gotten past that now. But, uh, but no, it's like having high conviction in, in what you're doing. I think that that's, that's a big thing. Yeah. I mean, it feels like I was at this press conference with Coinbase and it was sort of the first press event that I've been to like that since before the pandemic, I'd say. And I think back to like dinners with, you know, various firms in the space and the reporter demo that existed. And I'm fairly young and I felt like I was the oldest reporter in that room. It was all new faces. None of the folks who existed who were reporting on crypto four years ago were there. Maybe that's not a result of my conviction, but maybe I should have gone on to do something else. But no, I think the space needs me to do this. The um, space absolutely needs you. The space does need you. you. Yes. Oh. We, we've always thought you were old, Frank, but now you're actually getting now old. Now I'm actually getting you very are. old. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was like, why are all these children here? Happening. And it happens. It happens it before your eyes. It does. Yeah. The children, one of the hardest things for me to get used to was when Dow's took off. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what about the Dow? Like, that's yeah. what I know. I know the Dow. I went through the Dow. Yeah. What was I that sent- like? Well, okay, so it was actually very interesting because our CTO at the time at CMT, he and I were like, this thing's going to blow. So let's send a bit of ETH to it so we can be part of the process. And so, I mean, it was it was actually really interesting to go through it and have that happen and be a part of it. But it, it is always a little weird to me that we've picked up DAOs 
the way we have, like just instead of changing the term yeah. or something. You should have came up with a rebranding But the kids effort. don't know, to your point. They're no, new, they don't so they know. don't know, unless they read Laura Shin's book, which they should. Class of 2021-ers, yeah. they don't know. It's a new vintage. But yeah, I feel like each cycle brings about its own element of chaos. I mean, between Three Arrows and Terra Luna, I mean, it ruined my summer. I mean, I was expecting to have a nice, calm summer. And that was a lot of late nights till 2 a.m., just covering and scanning the market. Did that, I mean, obviously it surprised you, but what does that say about, I feel like now all those companies are very quiet, right? Those, the C5 firms. I figured, you know, when we look back in 2017, it was these ICOs, these white papers in a dream that kind of brought down the market to an extent. And this most recent cycle, it was supposed to be, it was... Not to call anyone out, but it was like our own mini little tiny financial crisis. Yeah, and I think what, what's happened with a lot of these is that you have something that is a core idea that is completely right. Like the crypto credit market enables yeah. credit to flow from anyone in the world that has capital to those that need capital in a seamless way. And you cut out intermediaries and it makes a ton of sense and it's going to be very big and very successful. But then you get the implementation of that and the growth of that, and it grows very quickly, and you don't have the underwriting and risk controls and all of those things that you actually need to be a successful credit firm. And then it blows up. And then you have people bring in, oftentimes people from TradFi that have the right experience to do that in the right way. And then you get the second version of that, which does it in the right way. And it will rebuild and it will be extraordinarily successful and extraordinarily big. But you kind of have to, you know, the joke is always crypto's learning the mistakes of, uh, you know, TradFi, you know, again and again. And, and some of that, there's some truth to that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Any other sort of parting words? I, I just wanted Frank Bank. We didn't talk nearly we enough about Frank Bank. We didn't talk about Frank Bank. No, next time. It's going to be the next big thing. It's, you know, banking, frankly. I love that. Yeah. I want to bank, frankly, with Frank Bank. Isn't that a great tagline? Is that how I get the farm? No, that's a separate project. It's separate. That's a separate project. Oh. Also going to be huge. There are so many things from Frank that are going to be huge. I'm really, I've got my hands in many Forget different. Forget Gen Alpha. He's the alpha. There's, yeah. there's going to be yeah. an empire. Yeah. It's like, yeah. unlike anything you've ever seen. Well, this was fantastic. Once again, we've been joined today by our guests, Peter Johnson and Colleen Sullivan, co-heads of Venture at Brevin Howard Digital. Where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're doing? I feel like you guys might like be one of those firms that just has like the the one white page and like the logo and then that's it. We're changing it. Or no. <laughs> we, we, we have a website. We're getting a new website. BrevinHoward.com is the main Brevin Howard site. I think it's slash digital to get to. Uh, the site on the uh, what we're doing. Also, I'm on Twitter at the Chicago VC. I'm at Colleen Klein. Peter's going to have to change that. Did you look for at the Austin? PC? I'm, st I'm still going to be the Chicago VC, no okay. matter where I am. Good. Well, yeah. Um, if you have a blue check mark, though, do you have one? I don't. If you no, if you have no. yeah, if you change your handle, it removes it. Well, 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 well luckily, I'm not like, important enough. It's like basically sending it. Definitely out. important enough. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I'm working on it. If you do press, I'll, 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 I'll do it for you. I'll figure it out. Nice. Um, 
No, it's funny. You know, the first time I covered Jump, like I was, you know, I was just starting out as a markets reporter and it was one of the first stories that I had written about and some guy was leaving or something and I didn't really know, I didn't know like high frequency trading from like biscotti, you know, <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm like, all right, let me check the website to see what they do. And I'm like, there's nothing on the way. I was like, I have to call someone to like, tell me what these people do. I was like, all it had was the, the locations. So I was like, all right, they do finance stuff in these five cities. And then of course, no, I had to like actually figure it out. But I remember that being such a source of frustration for me at like age, I was like 20, you know, covering uh, market structure and trading and, you know, didn't have that background. So, and, and, then, I think at, for, and then at some point you got a hold of me and I talked with you. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy seems really smart and experienced. He must be like a 50 year old. Yeah. That was, <laughs> Seriously. That was like the key to my success at the time. But, you know, I, I love that this whole world is opening up. And, and for people who have just started being in crypto and seeing the jumps and all of these different, you know, high speed firms be open and public. It is just like still something I am not, I, I'm not used to at all. Um, still very strange to me. I'm like, why are you saying that? Why are you, why are you even talking to me? You're not supposed to, this isn't how it works. Um, anyway, it's, with that said, thanks for being on the yeah, show. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's a great point too, because to that point, Peter and I should never be together. Because that's the way those firms were. You don't talk to each other. Yeah. You know, CMT wouldn't talk to Jump. Jump wouldn't talk to DRW. DRW wouldn't talk to CTC. Like, you don't collaborate or cooperate. And crypto completely changed that. Like, all the prop trading firms worked together in Chicago. And it was a big, big change. Yeah. I think that's, like, relatively underrated, that, that shift. It hasn't really fully been, I don't know if appreciate is the right word, but... I definitely agree with you. Now you can say goodbye. <laughs> now I can say goodbye. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Frank. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.